This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. That person who says, you know, I don't need GPS. You know, my iPhone tells me where I am. Well, actually, your iPhone doesn't tell you where you am. It's GPS that tells the <laughs> iPhone where you are. So that, to me, is a classic case. Same thing with weather. I think people take for granted uh, that the weather is coming from our exquisite satellite systems uh, with incredible capabilities. Uh, national security, we know what's happening around the world for us to make decisions, to know when folks are doing bad things. I think people just sort of take it for granted. But in some ways, that is already space as a service is, you know, to the end user, they might not know that this is coming from the cool place of space. But at the end of the day, that is what's actually driving the information that allows them to make important decisions. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi. I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. What do the words Sputnik, Apollo, or satellite phones make you think of? I bet a lot of people would answer the space age and would likely say we're still living in the space age. My guest today would say we're in a new space age. Space Age Mark II, if you will, and that is very different from the first one. Steve Isakowitz is the CEO of Aerospace, one of the foremost aerospace think tanks in the world. The spark that led him to a career in engineering was ignited by Apollo and Stanley Kubrick's classic film, 2001 A Space Odyssey. He marveled at the power of the Saturn V booster and the fact that humans had conceived it, built it, and made it work. And his bent towards the commercial side of the space biz, that was sparked by the vision of routine, even mundane spaceflight embodied by the Pan Am space line scene in the Kubrick film. Steve has had a ringside seat to the emergence of the new space age we now live in. Working at NASA as the agency pivoted from the shuttle back to the moon, and at Virgin Galactic, when the space tourism business was just budding. You'll hear how various random events and small kindnesses helped sustain his boyhood interest, how much of his career actually was built on things that did not go well, and the lessons he took from those. And together we'll explore today's congested, contested, and commercial space environment, the notion of space as a service rather than a place, and the hot issue of mining the moon. So let's explore. Steve Azakowitz, thank you so much for agreeing to join me for this conversation about the new space age. Great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Kathy. I want to help our listeners appreciate who you really are and uh, all of those experiences and talents you bring to your current role as the CEO of Aerospace. So let's go back in time to something in the vicinity of 1961 and tell me about the young Steve Asakowitz growing up in Cleveland and what the influences were that formed him and, and set him on the pathway that has ended up with you here. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. All right, join me in the time machine. Let's go back to Cleveland, Ohio, 1961. Is that well, when the river was burning? <laughs> yeah, that came later though. And okay. I wasn't responsible for it, so. <laughs> As a little kid, I was always very curious, but really what ignited my interest in the space program is something that, Kathy, I have to believe it ignited yours as well, was the Apollo program. And I think the thing that sort of separated me from those of us who were really excited about the Apollo program, you, you might've been one of those who, when looked at it, said, 
oh man, I want to be Neil Armstrong. I want to walk on the moon. I want to be that person. You know, I, on the other hand, for some reason, just was captivated by the Saturn V. I, I just huh. could not believe that we could build thing the size of a football field and actually have that thing work. You know, and I hadn't seen a launch. And again, uh, you and I, of course, if you flew on a rocket, I've seen rockets since then, and I still get absolutely amazed. And that's where I really fell in love with uh, the space program. I just said, man, I've got to work on something that can harness that much power and it works. Huh. The other thing that caught my imagination, which has really kind of uh, driven my interest on the commercial side of all things was uh, a movie that uh, maybe some of your older listeners will know, but 2001 Space Odyssey. Right. I love that movie. I still love that movie. I still think it is frankly the most accurate portrayal of what space is like because there's scenes of silence in there as opposed to explosions. Hear about orbital mechanics in that movie where they don't in Star Wars. But I love that movie. There's a scene in there that just always stuck with me. You might remember it, Kathy. And that is the one where they're on a Pan Am space line that's yes. going between, yes, they're going between the Earth and Moon. And it's kind of like really matter of fact. It's almost kind of like a boring scene. But that just kind of like fueled my imagination saying, wow, I mean, that, that's the space program I want to grow up in. One that really just, I could get a ticket and go to the moon. Uh, and sort of those two images of both the Apollo and the Saturn and, and seeing the movie 2001, that just literally ignited me. And again, I was you know, seven, eight years old when the movie came out and Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. So, you know, I was, I was a pretty young kid, but that just drove me. Did the idea form in your head explicitly? I want to be in the space program because you know, I'm enough older than you. I watched <laughs> Mercury and Gemini as well as Apollo. And the thought never crossed my mind that I want to be in the space program or be an astronaut. What struck me was watching these people that had such adventurous and inquisitive lives. But I, I'm really curious about when people in their young age get either the driving force motivation or the goal by name, I want to be an ex. Yeah, no, it's, uh, by the way, I love your passion on it. And it's it's funny, it's those little things sometimes that make a difference, you know? And, you know, the same thing for me, it's it's one thing to have the spark that says, wow, this is interesting. And, you know, I think you and I are probably both struck by when you speak to, you know, uh, young kids, they, they all love space and they all have that same inquisitive enthusiasm that you just demonstrated, but somehow we lose it somehow along the way. And so to me, that's one of the, maybe one of the big grand challenges I think we have for our space program is how do we maintain that enthusiasm. Now, for me, what happened was, I fortunately had uh, two parents that had immigrated from uh, Eastern Europe, being Jewish. Uh, they both had survived the Nazis. My dad was actually in a concentration camp, and most of my family was uh, actually died as a result of that. Oh. But my parents always put a premium on education. They were always very supportive, and they always argued that at the end of the day, education is the one thing I can't take away from you. you know, my parents lost everything in Eastern Europe, not just family, but everything, their, their livelihoods, everything. But what they've learned along the way and what I was able to learn, they really instilled it in me. So they went out and they, you know, we weren't particularly rich, but my mom bought these encyclopedias. In fact, probably younger people say, what encyclopedias? But they were encyclopedias, right? And in these 25, six books was like the world's knowledge at a top level. It was the Google of the day. And after the Apollo program, I actually had nothing to read. There was no search I could do. And I remember I just devoured the World Book Encyclopedia. That then followed up with my mom's best friend from high school in Cleveland, whose husband happened to be working at what was then NASA Lewis, today NASA Glenn in Cleveland. And he heard I was interested. So he used to send me the world's most boring books on space, huh. space travel, and so on. But, you know, as a young kid, I just, you know, I ate it up. I just was... I couldn't get enough of this, but it was sort of like those little things along the way that just, you know, individuals, I can't remember the guy's name anymore. I feel bad about that, but, you know, he deserves as much credit as anybody where I am today. It's just little things along the way that people that touch you, that just keep the fire burning in you, that keeps you want to want to uh, keep going. So th these are things that made a difference. So were you, uh, were you a sports kid, a nerdy kid, very bookish, math and science naturally easy to you or... Or what? Yeah, fortunately, you know, I was good at math. 
And so I was sort of known as that. And I remember at elementary school, and that always kind of made me feel good. I was kind of a bookish kid, but uh, I did get caught up in sports, you know, to my, my mom's credit. Actually, she was the one that said, Steve, you got to get out of the house. Uh, <laughs> so she she was the one that used to go out. She was not a great athlete herself, but she used to just play catch with me. And it kind of got me interested in sports. You know, in some ways, sports is also a great keep of physics and statistics and I then started to eat that up. And, you know, I had an incredible mind for remembering all these great statistics of all these sports teams. So even to this day, I'm a big Cleveland Browns fan, Cleveland Indians fan, and so on, because, you know, I fell in love with sports at the same time. But are you asking me, am I a great athlete? That we could skip over. <laughs> but did you do any sports in school? Because, you know, sports can teach you some good lessons about bringing groups of people together and succeeding yeah. in a group, leading a group. Uh, I did actually, you know, when I got to high school, I played uh, four years on the football team. We were a really small school, so you could get the, the non-athlete like me, believe it or not, to be able to not only play, but even start some games uh, on it. But to your point, it actually did teach me a lot about, you know, even engineering is a team sport. You know, I remember feeling the importance that, you know, everyone's got to do their thing. Otherwise, the quarterback sapped. And you know, how important it is that we each have a role and we do it right. Because when I started off, I said, just take care of yourself. Just, you know, you do your thing. But then I realized, that, you know, I got to start patting some of the backs of some of the other players, rooting them on, helping them out uh, to make a difference. And it showed up again when I was at MIT. You know, I rode on the crew team in my first year. And there is a sport where, like, you've got to have, you know, eight people in perfect unison with each other. And yeah. Just one person and you've lost the race. Or worse yet, you get the oar on your back. <laughs> You know, the, yeah, sports do actually, it is a good way to learn and it actually applied really well, I think, to, to management and taking on these big endeavors like in the space program. Yeah, if you get a four oared or eight oared shell really moving along, you know, the phrase is actually, but the boat sings. It does. And it's just, it's an amazing feeling if you get to that level. Did Very, you row? I, I rode crew in graduate school, four oared, yeah, yeah, quads. Yeah, it's, when, it, when, you have, when it's all humming, it feels like you're just gliding. Yeah, yeah, like you're not even on the water anymore. And, yes. and then when you catch a crab and snag an oar, it gets ugly fast. Yep. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you got it. So you finished high school in Cleveland, and did you remind us of your academic path? Undergraduate where, grad school? Sure. Yeah, that's the other thing that I think is important is, you know, I talked about the importance of people that are influential in your career. You know, this was an area that actually... I didn't actually get great advice. I knew I wanted to be an engineer. I knew I was interested in the space program. But back then, at least at my high school, and I imagine it's still at other high schools even to this day, you know, the advice that I was getting was actually not great advice. So I wound up at MIT, but really it was by chance. Uh, there was other schools that actually I was actually more interested in. But looking back now, I'm really glad I didn't wind up going there. And it was just by a series of happenstance. I was at a party at a friend's house one night and, and I got accepted into MIT and I had no interest in going. Why? Because there was a, my physics teacher, even though I was an A student said, you know, MIT is for really serious students and I don't think you could cut it there at MIT. So that just completely discouraged me and I sort of ruled it out. Anyhow, I was at this party. My mom calls me up at the party, which is weird. And she says, I got a call from a professor at MIT. Notice that you did not answer yes or no to your acceptance. The deadline is next week. And he wanted to know if you had any questions. Well, it was one of those moments where, again, I'm thinking to myself, wow, like a professor from MIT called me. I called him back. He convinced me to visit the campus. And when I visited, I fell in love with the campus there, you know, in Cambridge, just outside of Boston. And while I was there, I accepted uh, to go to MIT. And, uh, you know, I'm really glad I did. But again, there's a case of just, you know, serendipity. It's this professor happened to call me. So he made all the difference. And so it's one of those kind of things that is, you know, sticks with me to the day. So one of the things I try to always devote time to is to help, you know, younger folks try to make those kinds of decisions as they're trying to face career, whether what college or what to do after college, grad school, and so on. So it's not just pure serendipity that drives the decisions, but informed yeah. decisions. So when you got that call from Jack and then visited the campus, did you said you were kind of crestfallen, crushed by your physics teacher's verdict that he didn't think you could make it at MIT. Did that melt away? Did you find some initial confidence that you could, or was it just, well, I like it, so I'll try? 
But there was a moment there I thought he might be right. I remember that I took my very, very first test at MIT. It was one of like one of, like out of a movie where they had it in this old gym that had been there, I don't know, it was probably built in the 1910s. We went in this gym and they have these little desks and it's all in a row and there's like 150 students piling in. And it's one of those where the proctor says go and you get your hour, and you had your physics questions and, you know, done, turn in your paper. And then the next day they post the scores. You know, and in high school, you know, I had straight A's in high school and I get back my grade and it's like a C minus. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I just busted my butt. I've never got, I don't ever remember getting a bad grade. Oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to make it. But I just remember saying, you know, I'm here, I'm committed. I don't want to disappoint my parents. <laughs> uh, they're making a big investment on me. You know, I'm just going to double down. I'm just going to drive harder. And um, thank God that, that was the last time I got a C. You know, at, while I was at MIT, you know, things just turned around. Um, you know, you're with the best and the brightest there. So I knew I had to really work hard and I had to be serious on it. But, you know, it's just like all things you do that you do it for the first time that that first trial sometimes just doesn't go well. But that's not necessarily indicative of, you know, it's how you learn from that. And frankly, I know we'll talk about it later, but much of my career is things that didn't go well. <laughs> and how do you learn from that? Yeah. Let's skip forward a little bit. MIT come out physics and engineering. And I think when we first met, you were already at Virgin Galactic, but you've done a stint in quite a few stints in government before that. And I'm interested in what those jobs were and what lessons you took from your government jobs. Because of course the stereotype in our country is, you know, government is bad and stupid and dumb and only messes things up, teaches nothing. I've not found that to be true, but I'm, I'm wondering what your sense is. Yeah, certainly. And so, you know, my career didn't start in government. You know, what actually got me thinking as I was getting my later years at MIT is it went back to my youth again and that Pan Am <laughs> 2001 Space Odyssey image. And I started to think to myself, you know, I wonder if there's a non-government side to space travel that might be out there. And at that time, it didn't seem possible, but still. What sort of time frame was that? Uh, you know, we're talking early 1980s. Yeah, so the space shuttle has not flown yet. It's still in development. Right. It's kind of envisioned as being that Pan Am space plane from the surface of the Earth to low Earth orbit. It, yes. doesn't, it doesn't end up living up to that promise, but that was very much the vision. I remember I took a, a class just you know, thinking that someday this might happen. So I took a, a class at the business school on entrepreneurship. So that kind of, kind of got me thinking about what does it take to start up a business and to do it. And... Uh, I couldn't find an area in space to do it. But as part of that class actually came up with a business proposal that I actually, as it played out, I, there was people that wanted to invest and start it. They were gonna put money into it. I had a location, that whole thing was a go-go. But I said, you know, I was confident it could succeed. By the way, it was in the medical uh, record keeping, which frankly, looking back, probably would have <laughs> had me well off at a very young age. But it, again, it wasn't my passion. I was saying to myself, you know, I trained my whole life, and now I'm about to enter a career into I really want to, my first step, I'm stepping away. So I didn't want to do that. So then I saw an article, as serendipity would happen, in the old Aviation Week and Space Technology magazine. And it started talking about the stuff that NASA was doing that sort of sounded interesting. And this was sort of the earliest days on electrophoresis and all these ideas of McDonnell Douglas back then of trying to find some commercial or some application, terrestrial application for stuff that could be done. And it was being done by a, a particular consulting company that NASA had put under contract. It was Booz Allen. And so I said, that sounds really interesting. I want to go there. Anyways, make a long story short, I applied for a lot of jobs when I graduated from school. And I took the lowest paying one, which was the consulting job, because that one just sounded the most interesting to me. My first assignment, we, we had a study contract from NASA, which was to identify commercial opportunities for the eventual space station. And I remember doing work, and so you're going to laugh now, but I worked in the study, and my little contribution to the study was, I actually thought there was a commercial opportunity for all things. I don't know how I came to this, was spacesuits. Huh. I thought that there could be companies that could develop and offer and pay and cover the costs on spacesuits. Well, that never came to be, although I will note, I don't know if you saw this week, NASA was actually looking for things they could commercialize. And one of the things on their list was spacesuits. So 
it took a while to take hold 25 years later, but it did. Anyhow, it also became clear that NASA really was dominating that market, like you said. I mean, it was the space shuttle. I know you had worked on the getaway specials, gas canisters, and yeah, sort of so uh, mid-deck lockers. Oil and, drum size cans that you could put a small payload in or one, one drawer yeah. in the mid-deck lockers. They were basically real estate plays, right? What's this easy way to give you a small piece of real estate on a space shuttle so you could try something? Yeah, so I said, all right, well... Oh, I, I should also mention this. So not only was I looking at that, the other thing I had worked on literally was my first assignment is that uh, NASA was also at that time considering how can the space shuttle compete against the Europeans on their Ariane launch vehicle for launching commercial satellites. And they were thinking of having a marketing organization like Ariane Spas for the NASA program. And so I was with uh, Booz Allen and we were teamed up with Rockwell and we were going to pay for that contract. I was Pretty confident we were going to win. Ironically, they they sat me in a room with someone from Rockwell that we worked on the proposal together. And you'll laugh at this. His name was Scott Pace. Uh, <laughs> Scott Pace is quite a figure in national space policy in the United States. Yes, became an executive secretary of the National Space Council later on in his career. So yeah, so that's one of the things about the space program which I love is it's a small group of people that you always seem to run into, which is really makes it so charming uh, to be part of it. So anyhow, I, I was exposed to all this, and then. Sure enough, the Challenger accident happened in 1986. Game over. Not putting commercial satellites in the back of the space shuttle. We're not going commercial stuff. Only things that really require the NASA astronauts or some military commitment to follow through. But that was sort of the end of it. That then pushed to President Reagan came out and said, these satellites can only be flown on expendable launch vehicles. Well, at that time, as you remember, Kathy, the position was also to get out of all the launch vehicles. All the rockets were going away. And there was only one rocket at that time that really had any real production, and it was the Titan launch vehicle at the which, old Martin Marietta, now Lockheed Martin. Which largely was used for defense payloads. Which was used for defense payloads. But I went there, I left the consulting, I went to go work uh, with now Lockheed Martin because they said that they were going to now create a commercial Titan company to go out and start selling those things commercially. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, this is like, I'm at a company that's pretty much monopolized this. It's the only rocket that's in production. In fact, they have the sole contract with the Air Force to fly it. So this is going to be easy and it'd be a great experience. And then there was these other uh, rockets that they pretty much didn't have any contracts, Atlas and Delta. They're going away. Something myself. And I remember I, I led the market study where I concluded that only one or two companies can survive in that market. So I'm thinking, I'm presenting saying, so either the Atlas or Delta are going away. Now, Go fast forward. No one's even heard of the Titan launch vehicle if you're a younger crowd. <laughs> and, and the Atlas Atlas and Delta Delta's are still flying. <laughs> Big lesson learned. Nothing focuses the mind like knowing that you are going away unless you fight. And what happened was they innovated the heck out of those two rockets. Whereas the Titan, we did no innovation. We just said, we got this contract. And sometimes when you're not pushed, you, you just don't innovate. Well, I learned a lot from that experience of the importance of government policy. So now I'm coming back to your original question. Sorry, being long-winded, but this no, is the path that got me there. It's, it's life has these circularities to it. So I had realized at that time that it was through these government policies that was really driving this, this whole industry. It's not just some entrepreneur that says, I got a better widget. It's really the government that's going to enable it. And there were things the government did that I liked, and there were things the government did, and I was scratching my head said, what are they thinking? And so I had a mentor at the company who had, had had a career earlier at OSTP at the Science Advisors Office, Office of Science and Technology Policy. He found for me an opportunity to go work in the government that I jumped on. At that time, it was the Office of Management and Budget, which is in charge of all the budget activity for the United States through the White House. And I got, I got a job there. But it was all driven by the experience that I had that I said, boy, if there really is going to be this burgeoning industrial market in space, it's going to be the government that's going to have to enable it. Setting the right ground rules that properly bound or guardrail, but also make it possible and Absolutely. not throwing up barriers. Yeah. So great backdrop that you bring both to your work at Virgin Galactic and then where you are now at aerospace. And I want to be sure we take a moment to talk about aerospace and what it is and what it does. But before we go there, let's talk a bit about this new space age we're in. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. we've just talked our way through Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, even the shuttle, and we're in a really different place now. One moniker or one 
way that some pundits capture it is to say that this new space age, space is going to be more congested, more contested, and more commercial. And I want to unpack each of those with you a little bit. But there's another way of couching it that I think is emerging even more recently than those three. And that is thinking of space not even as a place, but just as a service. And these are for kids that grew up in the rocket age and rode them a bit. These are like, you know, very, really very different concepts. So maybe we could start with commercial. I would bet if I say commercial space, most people listening to this podcast, the first word to come to their mind is going to be tourism. And the next thing to come to their mind likely will be Sir Richard Branson. Uh-huh. You spent some time at Virgin Galactic. Tell us a bit about that company, what it was working on when you were there and what you were working on, because it's not just the tourist flights. No, it's not. So you're right. I had gone from the government, pick up where the last question was. So I spent uh, you know, a good 20 years in the government and, and different positions, both at OMB for a number of years. So I got to see it from the White House. I, I got a chance to go to uh, NASA. I was at NASA during the Columbia accident, and I'll, I'll tie back to Virgin in a moment. But you know, the, the big decision we had to make while we were at NASA is after we had the Columbia accident is what's next? You know, what's next? And um, Sean O'Keefe was a NASA administrator and uh, deputy CFO at the time. And I came to him and I said to him, sir, you know, if we're going to replace the uh, orbiter, which you need a strong four orbiter fleet to keep the space station well supplied, you know, Rockwell's long gone. You know, all the machining, it's not like Challenger, which that was the obvious thing to do is just build a new orbiter. You can't build a new orbiter. It's going to be really expensive. So we could build something that does the same function, or we could try to get by with three orbiters. But maybe we should use this time to think of a different mission for NASA. And so I mentioned at the time, I said, maybe, you know, now's the time to go back to the moon. And he said, well, give some thought. And I went off and worked with other people like uh, Gary Martin and so on, who was the space architect at the time. And uh, we looked at a, a variety of different approaches, whether we should go to the moon with humans, or we should go to Mars with the humans. And we looked at a third one that says, let's just do it all robotically. And we you know, why do you need humans to, to do it if you really want to do it? So we came back, we set up independent teams, the three teams came back and what we concluded was it's all the above. You really need to do all the above in the right mixing and matching. But the other thing that sort of came to me at the time was NASA really should try to get out of the low Earth orbit business. You know, the space station is great for the science that we need, that, but it's most beneficial, in my view, to inform the things we want to do for deep space. So working as a, using the station as a learning platform for going beyond, not just trucking back and forth. Yeah. So uh, again, we had hard decisions to make on whether to continue the space shuttle and so on, but what I thought that the vision needed to be at that point was maybe this is the time to see if United States industry is prepared with the right government incentives to take on the responsibility of launching things into Earth orbit, operating things into Earth orbit, and having its own ecosystem uh, that can thrive on its own. So Richard Branson had the vision of similarly trying to see how we could democratize space, how we can open up the frontier. And frankly, it was that Pan Am that I had referred to earlier. It's not going to the moon and it's not going to orbit, but it's taking the first step, which is an affordable first step of suborbitally trying to get to the edge of space and back. And uh, Peter Diamandis, uh, who was a classmate of mine from MIT, had this vision of trying to do a Charles Lindbergh type of prize for a private entity that could fly to the edge of space and back. And there was a lot of naysayers that said, industry just can't do that. That's just too hard. Someone's gonna get killed. This is not gonna end well. Well, he went forward, set up a $10 million prize, all the X prize. And there was one of the great engineers of our time, Bert Rutan, who was waiting for a moment like this, didn't really care about the money. It wasn't about the money, but it was the opportunity to actually demonstrate that this could be done. And he did get the backing, so that helped. Paul Allen of uh, Microsoft uh, fame and fortune, uh, who put some money behind it. And he went off and came up with the spaceship which demonstrated that within a period of two weeks, you could fly a person to the edge of space and back and do it twice with the same vehicle to try to demonstrate the practicality that maybe you could have kind of airlines-like operations to give people the experience of flying to the edge of space and back. Uh, Richard Branson became uh, aware of that because he also was contracting with the same company, Scale Composites, for a vehicle that flies like a solo around the world. And some of his folks reported back on this secret project that was taking place (laughs) on scale. 
And Richard got very excited, had discussions with Paul Allen, bought the intellectual property of this basic spaceship design. And from there kind of came up with a larger version of Spaceship One called Spaceship Two, which is the vehicle that is you know, now being flown and he'll be hopefully flying on uh, this weekend. So fast forward to me. So they already had the design. They had this company, Scale Composites, which if you will, was gonna build the first unit of it. And then they hired me initially to be the chief technology officer and later I became president of the company. But by the time I came on board, things were pretty much designed. And so we were really in the test phase you know, of this vehicle, uh, getting ready to fly at incremental levels up to the edge of space. So what's your take on tourism? Is there really a Pan Am market there or is there more uh, a niche market like commercial expeditions to the top of Everest or diving to Titanic? So you want, you want the real inside information? Yeah. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's just hard to tell. I think it's true with any new sort of technology that's brought to the market. It's really hard to project how big the market could be for this wireless shoebox that we call a phone, you know, how far can it, can it take it? Same thing here, you know, we have a lot of people and as in any technology that are the classic first adopters, you know, they're like, sign me up. Yeah, I realize it's risky. I realize, you know, I might be the first and there's gonna be, hopefully it won't happen on my flight, but you know, sign me up. And I think that's what we're seeing now, a lot of first adopters, people that just like, oh, I wanna climb Mount Everest, I wanna be the first, I wanna, you know. The second wave, I think we're also starting to see is what I would call the, the bucket list folks. You know, people who grew up in Apollo and so on and said, you know, before I die, I wanna see Earth from space, or I wanna look at the stars, or I wanna say I was, you know, I got to be an astronaut. So there are those people that are following. But to your question, does that measure hundreds of thousands, millions of people? That, that is a little harder to tell. And so the, to me, the real question is going to be is, I think it can open up to much bigger numbers if A, we prove that it's safe. If somebody who buys a ticket says, I am highly, highly confident I'm coming back. Like when you get on an airplane, you don't think about, you know, yeah. God help me I, that I land in D.C. You, you expect it. The second is the affordability. It's still not cheap, you know. The last ticket prices when they were uh, having tickets were like two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars. That's not cheap. Now it's a lot cheaper than spending tens of millions if you want to go into orbit today. So it is more affordable that way, but it's still not cheap. But the price needs to come down if you're going to open it up. Now the big question is: when you get the price down and the safety up, will people say, "I want to go too"? Or at that point, will it be like, "Eh, you know, ten thousand people did it before me. It's not as interesting." That's the part that I, you know, I don't know. My gut tells me at the right price point, I think it actually would have a lot of people that would want to do it. And I think at the right price point, when you get a lot of people flying, there are ways to add features to the flight. So it's not just the same flight out of New Mexico or Texas in the case of Blue Origin, but other places you could fly, things you could fly over, point to point kinds of things that could really make it you know, more interesting, more features that you could give to it, short of having to go orbital. So, you know, we'll see. The big question in my mind along those lines has been, is, is there a genuine demand function that is other than I want to? I mean, satellite communications are lucratively commercialized because there's a 8 billion person urge and need to communicate with people, go on and on and on. But what is the human need, uh, traffic need that would really drive that beyond, beyond just desire? And I have not convinced myself about one yet. Yeah, you're right. No, is there sort of a practical, economic, scientific, right. you know, the things we classically think of? It's not obvious, but again, you know, there is a massive economy around tourism, around people who want to just share in the experiences. You know, I think people are going to say, wow, when again, we have people walking on the moon and uh, yeah. you know, I'm hoping in my lifetime, I hope to see the first person step on Mars, but we all can't go. So I think this is a way to vicariously sort of experience that. Look, I'm talking to an astronaut, so I know you, you, you did the real thing, but I will tell you in a small way, just to know that you're still at the tip of a rocket. Yeah. <laughs> you're still pulling three Gs. You're still having that noise and the vibrations. You're still having that, that, that adrenaline rush because you don't know for certain what's going to happen. You're still going to have an opportunity only, only for a few minutes, but you're having a chance to, to, to float around and land. So again, in a much smaller way than you experienced, Kathy, but I do think it does give people that sense of what it's like mm -hmm. in, in a 
a small way. And I think, you know, there's some value in that. And then there's things that intangible, I defer to you on this, but, you know, there's the old overhead effect that people talk about that when you see earth from space, suddenly it kind of changes your perspective when the borders are gone and you see the atmosphere is much thinner than anything you could have imagined, you know, so whether there's not sort of this virtuous aspect to it, that people that come back can be ambassadors for environmental and other issues. Yeah, that is one that occurs to me because it, it is that profoundly moving an experience. So then there's the part about contested. And <laughs> I know this is an area that aerospace does a lot of work in is the question of space debris, this new architecture that's coming out of small satellites, like quite small satellites by the thousands, in some views, the tens of thousands. How close do you think we are to having the kind of collision chain reaction that was depicted in gravity? Are, are, there, are there solutions actually starting to emerge to try to handle both the congestion of active satellites and the debris? An object flying in outer space in low, just low Earth orbit that's the size of a poppy seed, if it hit you, would hit with the force of a 90 mile an hour baseball pitch. I mean, the, the energetics are, the speeds make small things really lethal. Yes. No, absolutely. You know, and it's one of those things that's not intuitive. I think when people think of space, you think of it, it's huge. It's limitless. It's, you know, so like I was watching yesterday uh, a documentary where Buzz Aldrin let some stuff fly out of the open door of the Gemini capsule and just flew out into space. And I'm sure at the time, no one was thinking anything up, stuff like that. You know, we used to put stages into space that years after they'd been out there, you know, the propellants would uh, build up a pressure and would cause the stages to explode into thousands of pieces. And again, I don't think anybody was thinking of it because, you know, this space is voluminous and limitless. And, but you bring up something actually that's quite profound and it's actually a little bit scary, which is, uh, you know, in fact, my first exposure to this was, you remember something called the long duration exposure facility? Yes. Something Basically a, an inert school bus that... Yes went up in the shuttle cargo bay and stayed there a long time so we could measure and learn how many poppy seeds and grapes <laughs> and blueberries are flying around and what kind of damage can they do. And I remember when that thing came back and looking at pictures of this thing and it was like, wow, this thing is really popped up with a lot of things that, that are hitting this thing. And, you know, again, for you having done a spacewalk in your career, I'm mean, I said, oh my God, you know, that's the last thing you want is anything like that coming anywhere close to astronauts, let alone space stations things that are important for our national security and so on and into space. So you bring up a very profound issue, which is that, you know, today we have around, I think it's around 3000 active satellites. We are looking over the next decade, you know, for 10, 20, maybe 30,000 satellites, depending on how much of these commercial activities and low earth orbit. We also know there is a lot of debris of things that we can see, but we also know in the next couple of years, as we improve our ability to see what's in space, we're expecting that number to go way, way up. We also know today that we have satellites trying to move out of the way of these objects or other satellites. And that interferes with their ability to conduct our mission, and particularly on issues of national security. You don't want your satellites blinking when something is going on around the world. And then at the worst extreme is what you refer to, it's called the Kessler syndrome, where just that you get so much debris up there, everything's smacking into everything. And even though you're not launching anything, it's just continuously getting work because everything is hitting other things. So pretty soon you've polluted low Earth orbit so that not only can't we not live and work there, but we've actually seen it on some recent launches where the windows for the launch were dramatically decreased because of things that were flying overhead and you were just trying to stay out of the way. So that, that is the worst case. Yeah. Low Earth orbit for those who are not space cadets, it's the area around Earth out to where do you draw the low Earth orbit boundary? How many miles up? Yeah, it's just a few hundred miles. Okay. You know, from the, uh, the lowest being, I don't know what, maybe 150 miles and you got space station and then you got these satellites that want to look at things on the earth. So they want to be close to the earth so the camera can get a good view. So, you know, it's just a, a few hundred miles. There's a lot of junk that is showing up in those orbits. So, hey, here's the good news. Uh, number one is I think governments now realize that, all right, so the United States government, and we now make requirements that you fly things into this orbit, you have a certain amount of time that these things have to deorbit and come back to earth. You can't have stages that explode anymore. You, in you Earth can't, orbit. can't leave something up there that could turn into a bomb. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we do have uh, efforts on space traffic management where the government through the Department of Commerce and with the help of DOD is trying to help track these things and to try to create a, a mechanism that the stuff shared, even commercial companies that are trying to contribute to it. I am hopeful that as more countries are doing more and more in space, 
that there's going to be more of a, a global effort to regulate you know, what we do in uh, low Earth orbit so we can be much more responsible as we go forward and to share information, you know, frankly, because part of the problem is not only that uh, we're trying to track these things, but now we have little satellites that move around. And it's just, you know, we had a launch on an Indian rocket where they, they released over 100 satellites. It took a while to figure out where all those satellites were and yeah. where they were going. It's just, you know, it's just hard when you get little objects, you know, the size of, you know, a Coke can in some cases floating around up there and you're trying to track it. Well, and you raise another point that is worth commenting on, and that is, I think people would be surprised by the number and variety of countries that have space programs, even space agencies. I mean, mm -hmm. you've talked to most people on the street, they'll say, oh yeah, United States, Russia, China, but paint a little broader picture for the, the number and mixture of, of nations that are active in various ways in space. Some, some just as a customer of data from space, but you know, more than you might think that are actually launching things and operating objects in orbit. Yeah, and the thing that also I think people need to realize it's not just nations that put things in space anymore. Going back to my experience at Virgin, you know, when I first got there, one of the first things Richard asked of me is he said, you know, we want to invest money into a rocket that could take small satellites into space. And I remember the time he came to me because I didn't anticipate it when I first went there was, wait a minute, he wants me to build my own little rocket. You know, this is stuff that, you know, national agencies do. What, what do you mean a little startup? We're, we're going to build our own rocket, but you know, head down, let's go. And we did it. And we've flown recently. Uh, my old company has flown and there are others, you know, that have done it themselves. So the point being is now it's not just the province of government that's launching things into space. Companies can do it. There is, you know, the physics, physics, people are getting smarter, getting more experience. There's satellites that used to always cost millions. Now we're getting these little CubeSats, you know, that are being built for hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases, maybe even tens of thousands. So I actually think it's not just governments, but you're having a lot of industry around the world that are having the ability to actually build rockets and deploy small satellites uh, into space. So again, it underscores the importance of the nations getting together. Now, one of the things that makes me hopeful for this, I'll just give one example, hopefully you can appreciate it, is Antarctica. You know, Antarctica is an interesting place where a lot of nations have an interest or even sovereignty rights uh, that they claim over Antarctica. But yet the nations of the world got together and agreed that we would not pollute Antarctica, that whatever we bring in, we take out. We will be responsible. And even though we might have big disagreements and even war is being fought, that somehow the peace is being kept in Antarctica. Yeah. And, and so that to me is a case point where nations come together and have a joint interest as I think they do in space, because no one wants to eliminate the use of space for, for decades or hundreds of years to come. They can do it and we need to get there. Yeah, definitely. Um, so this phrase, space as a service, for someone who thought of space as the place she went to, what does that mean? How do you think about that at, at aerospace and the clients that you're working with? Yeah, space as a service. So again, the, the reason why you think of space as a service and uh, you know, people can't see this, but you know, my iPhone, right? There's the old joke that something's not a joke is, uh, you know, that person who says, you know, I don't need GPS, you know, my iPhone tells me where I am. Well, actually, your iPhone doesn't tell you where you am. It's GPS that tells the <laughs> iPhone where you are. So that to me is a classic case. Same thing with weather. I think people take for granted uh, that the weather is coming from our exquisite satellite systems uh, with incredible capabilities. Uh, national security, we know what's happening around the world for us to make decisions to know when folks are doing bad things. I think people just sort of take it for granted, but in some ways that is already space as a service is, you know, to the end user, they might not know that this is coming from the cool place of space, but at the end of the day, that is what's actually driving the information that allows them to make important decisions. So space is kind of becomes a hidden utility, right? It's like, I, I don't think about power plants and wires when I flip the light exactly. switch in my home. I just presume the lights will come on but some entity has to have invested in building and sustaining the power plant and the transmission and dis distribution grid. So how do you see those business dynamics e evolving in the space case? Who will have yeah. the incentive and the capacity to sustain the infrastructure, whether it's 10,000 small sats or 100 bigger sats to keep providing these communication signals and images and weather data? Well, the best example we have of that today is communication satellites. You know, for decades, we've been able to rely on private industry to provide 
communications from geosynchronous orbit or the that orbit that's unique because it keeps a satellite over one, one spot in the sky if you're sitting on the ground looking up. Uh, and commercial has done that. They have moved the technology along uh, and they've given us a, a lot of capability in that regard. There's now a growing interest in Earth observation on things that could be used by private countries, industry for, for land management for, and for other important decisions that, you know, as you go forward. And right now, the big craze is over these proliferated constellations of satellites with the idea of essentially bringing internet capability globally anywhere in the world. So like Starlink. Yes, that's through Starlink, OneWeb. OneWeb. Uh, I think Telesat wants to do it. Kuiper is another entity that's looking this, to do it. So this yeah. This would be like how telephones in large parts of the world skipped the copper wire stage and went directly to cell phones. And this would be internet skipping the fiber optic stage and going directly to satellites. So, you know, the question is, is there enough to demand? You know, we have seen examples in the past where people try to do things through space, but terrestrial advances outpace the space side of things, and it turned out to be cheaper to do it from the ground than it is uh, to do it from space. There'll always be that sort of dynamic. And so, uh, you know, I think that's what we're seeing today is people who believe that, you know, space is a unique vantage point to provide those kind of services, and it's worth spending billions, and it's not the government's billions. I want to talk a little bit about international cooperation and prospects of going beyond even geostationary orbit much further from Earth. Stephen Hawking said once uh, of this new space age, and I'll quote here, space exploration has already been a great unifier. We seem able to cooperate between nations in space in a way we can only envy on Earth, close quote. Do you share that vision in today's world? You know, I do a couple things. One is, if you look at the International Space Station, right after the demise of the Soviet Union to Russia, there was concerns that the Russians have been low on cash, would be selling things uh, that would be missile technology to countries that would not be in anyone's interest to have that. And so the United States stepped in and looked for opportunities where we could help employ those, those engineers to a, a better purpose. And the space station was one of those projects. And uh, the Russians led with the initial modules that went up there uh, for the space station. Some people didn't like it. They were like, oh, the Russians are slowing us down and I don't want it to depend on an old adversary for something that's critical. But you know, through all these years, through all the ups and downs that we've been through, and you know, things are not great between the United States and Russia today, but we still cooperate with the Russians in space that has still handled all the changes that both, both nations have gone through I, I think it's, a, frankly, a stellar example. And as one who was a, at the government at the time when we made the initial invite to the Russians, I didn't actually think it would turn out as well as I think it has. It not only helped us with the, the station, but frankly, one of the hardest decisions we had to make is when we decided to uh, cease flying the space shuttle and we know we didn't have a replacement, we were depending on the Russians through their Soyuz capsule to bring our astronauts to the space station. We were depending on the Russians for the rocket engines that powered our Atlas rocket that carries you know, the bulk of many of the satellites you know, that are flown today. So I do think through space cooperation, you can really do a lot. And so that's why I'm upbeat about what NASA is trying to do through the Artemis Accords, which is their effort on going back to the moon to try to find like-minded nations to find ways to do it. Now, the hard thing in international, my only catch is, is when you put another nation on the critical path, it can be kind of tense. So to me, the, the perfect world is something that allows the United States to proceed with its plans, but brings in international partners that enhances and improves upon you know, our ability to, to do the things that we're going to do in space. And I think the moon and Mars, I think, are going to be classic examples. Yeah, China is now on the moon and is on Mars and has taikonauts, as they call them, doing right. the first long duration flight on their own space station. And meanwhile, NASA is barred from collaborating with China by, by act of the Congress. If you were omnipotent, would you leave that policy in place or change that? What would your posture to China be, cooperating <laughs> with China be? Well, we're gonna have to see how that, that plays out. You know, right now there is certainly a lot of tension between the United States and China and uh, members of Congress, frankly, I think there's not a lot they agree on, but this, um, this is one of the areas where they do agree, which is they don't want the United States to be co uh, cooperating at this time, you know, uh, with with the, with the Chinese, 
I think there are things we can do short of, you know, jointly developing or building something together. And it always starts here, which is the science. So I am hoping that, and some people are a little terrified that the Chinese landed on Mars, just like we have, you know, as an earthling, I applaud that. I, I like to see that. I am excited what they find. I hope they'll share what they find as we try to share what we find. And I always think that that's always sort of the first step to sort of a normalization of relationships with, you know, countries around the world. That's the one language that we all speak. Yeah. I think that certainly the history of, of the space program and the, the Soviet U.S. era, science diplomacy through space programs and activities was a very important avenue of keeping mm -hmm. some channel of communication open that could serve as a safety valve for greater tensions. I, I recall that even during this, when the Soviet war in Afghanistan was raging and diplomatic relations between the countries at an official level had been suspended, there were still authorized institute to institute scientific collaborations around the geology of Venus, for example, uh, that carried on through, through that hot, very hot period of geopolitical relationships. Just a fun fact that Kathy, I just learned about this a couple weeks ago because I was watching a documentary on something called American Experience. But do you know that President Kennedy was looking to try to go yes. to the moon jo jointly with the, with then the yeah. Soviet Union and yeah. had, had and actually offer that up to Khrushchev as a, as a possibility. And uh, some say that had he not been assassinated, that Khrushchev might have taken him up on going jointly to the moon. And it makes me wonder, you know, how would that have played out? You know, I don't, I mean, I don't know, but there's a part of me that says, you know, maybe we would have kept going if we had a joint. Instead of saying we won and let's, let's call it a day, we might've just kept developing our activities on the moon. Yeah, it's a little known fact and a fascinating prospect. I agree. Yes. So one of the big drivers that some embrace about going back to the moon goes under, every space geeks have to have acronyms. This acronym is ISRU, Institute oh. Resource Utilization. I spoke with Homer Hickam the other day and he said, I coal miner son, I just wanna mine the blame thing. You know, <laughs> There's water and other valuable stuff there, let's go. Uh, interested in your take on ISRU. Are there, are there pros and cons or is it just all a good thing? Will it become a reality? Should it become? What kind of rules of engagement should we put into place around it? Or is it just welcome to the Wild West? If you can get there, you can take it. On one hand, I, I believe it is necessary for long-term sustainment on the moon. And the same thing with, with Mars is we've got to find a way to, quote, where we can to live off the land. You know, whether it's economical, whether or not it actually has some benefit back to the Earth, you know, whether helium-3 can somehow be used for a fusion reactor someday or some, you know, I... I, I don't know about that. I do think we need to figure out a way that, you know, if there are water molecules and some quantity on the moon that allow us to mine it in a way that makes sense as opposed to shipping it, that's a good thing to, to learn. I think we're at the really early stage. So I'm not so worried about the economics right now. It's just to say, you know, what's possible? What are we, what are we finding? Uh, what, would, you know, what would they tell us to do it safely and effectively for longer term? I'll share with you a very interesting thing is that when I was at NASA and we were debating after Columbia what to do next. We had a uh, almost like a little bit of a contest within the White House of what should we do next? And uh, one of the big debates that it boiled down to is, should we go to the moon to just say, as a quick place to prove technologically that we have the ability to go you know, into deep space again, but really the focus, let's just go on to Mars. It's all about Mars. Let's not build big settlements or big infrastructure efforts on the moon. Let's really focus on Mars, because if we spend too much time on the moon, all our money is going to go there and we'll never get to Mars. But then there were those who said, no, 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 it is about developing the moon. Let's, you know, we, if we can find the, you know, the resources on the moon, maybe that'll be the future fuel that we could fuel up our rockets, you know, less expensively. Well, you know, candidly, it's not obvious to me that that second scenario works, but we should find out. You know, let's go, let's send probes, you know, to the south pole of the moon and see if, in fact, in those dark craters, there is any quantity in an environment that makes sense to extract it uh, that could allow us to get to Mars and do the other things, or even just to sustain our ability to, to be on the moon. So, you know, let's learn. Yeah. So I think you've been forewarned that something I do on a lot of these podcasts is 
bring it to an amusing close with a, a little sparkling of lightning round questions. And I should warn you also that if they haven't confessed to you already that some of your staff fed me some, that would be pretty fun <laughs> to ask. <laughs> so having started and being good at math and started in engineering, do you have a favorite math equation? Uh, e equals MC squared. <laughs> Should have known. Favorite science fiction movie? I think you've maybe already revealed that, but second place to 2001 A Space Odyssey would be what? Well, something more modern that people relate to. I actually love The Martian. I just sort of like this idea of, you know, that, that astronaut trying to engineer the heck out of trying to find, uh, you know, solutions. It just... Yeah, I, I, lo I love that. I love that. Yeah. Plus, they had the laugh out loud quote for me, which was astronauts are inherently noble and totally insane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your superpower? If you had one, what would it be? Gosh, I don't know if I have a superpower, but let's see if one that I think I'd like to have is to see what's over the horizon. I spend a lot of time trying to think about what's, what's over that horizon that we should be, that, that future world that we want, and we should be taking steps today to make that happen. Love to have that. Star Trek or Star Wars? Uh, Star Trek. Coming to a, not a serious note, but a more meaningful note. What would you say to a young listener? So my motivation with this podcast is to often offer insights and bits of wisdom to people early in their career, maybe college into first working years. What advice would you give those young people as good principles to hold to as you navigate your way through life and career? You know, I always lead with something that sounds a little too uh, cliche, but about finding your passion. I mean, what drives you? You know, I talked about in my career, I took lower paying jobs and things that, uh, you know, more responsible people would have said, what, what are you thinking? But, you know, people said that I, at a young age, say I want to be CEO of a major corporation like I am now. It, it's really not whatever drove me. It was there's a few sort of basic things, and I didn't know it at first, but over time I realized it, which was, number one, I really enjoy things that I think are truly impactful, and not on the local level, but on the global. If, if we can pull this off, this will have global impact. Second, I, I love things that are driven by technology, because I think that opens up a world that, you know, we've never been to before. Third is that just sort of the ability that, you know, I can make a difference in making it happen, and I could do it through the space program. And so for me to have found that sort of, sort of helped guide me along the way when other things have come up. And I think if a young person can find that, that goes a long way. And again, it's, it's you know, a lot of people are like, but I don't know, you know, and I didn't know either. So it's through trying these different things. It's through internship programs. It's to go into conferences. It's trying to find people like, uh, Kathy Sullivan that you could, you know, mentor with or chat with or see what inspired her to be one of the first women to, you know, do a spacewalk and put out the Hubble and, you know, go to the, the depths of the oceans. I think when you find those individuals, you, you, the, the, you find the spark within you. And then it's just a question of what do you have to do to keep it fueled, you know, for the passion in your life. I think those are the things that are, at least it has driven my career. Now you, you do need to balance it with other things you think about when you're young, you don't like, you know, what kind of husband do I want to be? What kind of father do I want to be? What kind of member of my community do I want to be? And so sometimes that causes you to make some compromises. Like I've had to say no to jobs that I was really excited about, but you know, I didn't want to pull my kids out of school because I was really happy with where they were going. So you, you, you make those choices along the way, but as long as you, you know, are passionate, and I will tell you, when I'm doing an interview, I do, yeah, I do look at your academics and what you know activities you've had and where your experiences have come from and what research you've done. But you know, when you get that individual whose eyes just open up and you could just see that they're truly exciting, it's it's uh, it's catchy. You know, it really gets you as the interviewer kind of like excited for that individual, and you're like, you know, I want her on my team. Uh, and so, find your passion and go for it. Wonderful. And how are the Browns going to do this season? <laughs> Super Bowl. <laughs> I guarantee it. <laughs> Kathy, I will I'll get you a ticket. You can join me. It's going to be here in Los Angeles. This is the year. Uh, I know my kids roll their eyes when I say it, but this is the year. They, they've, they've got the team. All right. I'm going to hold you to it. I'll watch, <laughs> I'll watch with ever greater interest now. <laughs>
And it'd be great to come see you in Los Angeles. But for now, thank you so much for joining me on Zoom for a delightful conversation. Thank you, Kathy. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.